Hello and welcome to another exciting and, you guessed it, jam-packed episode of Modern Day Philosophers. It's the last episode of 2017. A historic timestamp episode. People, historians and anthropologists will look back at only the podcast recordings of this era and study them and they'll say, ah, this is the only podcast we found. Like, this would be the only one to survive. From the end of 2017, they'll study this to understand what mankind was like at this time. And they'll be like, ah, they were strange. They were strange people. Especially, that's basically just uh, based on me. I'm not trying to take anybody else down with this ship. It's Danny LaBelle. It's Modern Day Philosophers. It's an ad-free episode for the new year. Try to give you one a year, and this is it. Today, my guest is David Keckner, who uh, you may know from Anchorman, or from Saturday Night Live, or from the many other things he's done. But certainly after listening to this, you will know him from this show. At least that, right? Huh? Hmm? All right, so, no ad. Uh, just tell you, Dave Keckner came in, did my show at the Hollywood Improv when I was doing The Lab uh, bookshelf show. He popped in. Did a set, was very funny. I stayed in touch, did the interview, and uh, really enjoyed talking to him. And I hope you enjoy listening to it. Uh, we talk about a whole bunch of things, got pretty personal. And this show, because it's not sponsored by a company, is uh, sponsored hopefully by you guys. This is a listener supported show, and there's a donate button at moderndayphilosophers.net. Go on and make a nice donation for the holidays, will ya? For the new year? For me? Come on! Come on! All right, all right, all right. Too much? Okay. And now, without further ado, except, of course, for the intro song, my talk with the one and only, or maybe there's more, I don't know, the only one I'm aware of, Dave Keckner. Enjoy. Welcome to Modern Day Philosophers. Modern Day Philosophers. Having failed to pay attention in school, Danny Lobel, now older and wiser, will attempt to learn basic philosophy 101. Our young hero will be joined by today's top comedians, philosophers all their own. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Danny Lobel. Modern Day Philosophers. David, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. I love your house. Thank you. You know, I've been to uh, a, a bunch of different comics houses. I'd say that this one is probably the most fun oh, really? feeling house that I've ever been to. Well, we do have five children, and so I've kind of, we've kind of packed this parcel of land as tightly as we can with stuff. With fun stuff? Yeah. Like, I'll, I'll give the listeners the idea as I walk through the house... You go in, you pass through the, the kitchen. Everything everything you walk by feels fun and friendly. It's nice. And then you get out, and there's this back area. And as you walk past it, there's a barbecue grilling pit with an industrial hood over it. And then there's an outdoor living room. And there's a pool. And there's a giant slide that goes down like the ones you'd see at McDonald's that goes in, like, into a ball pit. You don't have the ball pit. But, no, we don't have the ball pit. But, it, but just to picture, like, that's the kind of, like... 
We'll have to have your wife take pictures so your your uh, listeners can get a, a a visual. Or at the very least, you could Airbnb it. You know. Oh, never. <laughs> oh, never, never. <laughs> Shoot, there's too many people here anyway. I don't want strangers walking around. You have five kids. Uh-huh. Uh was that a was that a predetermined thing or it just happened like no, that? No. Uh I'll tell you, I'll try and make this really short how it happened. We uh got married and got pregnant right away. That wasn't the plan either. We just uh, my wife went off uh, uh birth control and we got I figured it'd probably take a year. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to have kids, uh just a couple in my mind. How and, old were you when you got married? Uh, was I 35? Okay. So, you know. We, my, about my age. Yeah, yeah. We weren't looking to waste time, but we weren't in a hurry. But as luck would have it, we got pregnant within three months without even, you know, without the intention of trying. Where was your career at this point? Uh, I've been very fortunate that I've, I've always worked. So this was 1998. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, you know, I... I was in Chicago for a long time and worked there and did uh, the I.O. and then the Second City. And then I got hired on to Saturday Night Live. And then uh, I was only on for a year and then they didn't renew my contract. And then I moved out to L.A. I was out here. I got a holding deal right away. I started getting film and television work right away. So like that, I was very, very fortunate. And mm-hmm. then um, uh, met my wife within six months. How did you meet her? Uh, we met in an airport in Kansas City. She's from Kansas City, and I'm from a small town in Missouri, and we'd both gone back. She'd been living out here four or five years, and I'd been out here six months, and we'd go both gone back for Christmas, 97. And so we were on the same flight coming back to Los Angeles on December 29th, 1997. Sounds like a romantic comedy. Take, yes, taking the uh, 10 o'clock flight on, uh, what was it, what was it? Gosh darn it, the airline. It just went out of my head. It's, it's defunct now. But anyway, it was, you know, they didn't have seat assignments. It's like TWA? No, no, no. Uh, it's not that old. <laughs> uh, I've, got a, I've got a poster of, of something. Pan, pan? No. Pan Am? Pan Am. <laughs> anyway, her brother recognized me and started talking to me, and then I noticed her, and then I sat down in the waiting area, then she sat down beside me and invited her, me to her New Year's Eve party, and we started joking around. She's from a family of six kids. I'm from a family of six kids. They ended up saving me a seat on the plane. And um, because like that, it's, it was uh, 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 ticketless. You know, they didn't have seat assignments. Hmm. And so uh, I sat with them. And then she and I were flirting right away. Halfway through the flight, her brother Pat says, Dave, are you attracted to my sister? Because I think you're going to be around for a long time. If you knew Pat Morgan, you go, of course, Pat would say something like that. And I'm thinking, you know, I hope to hold this girl's hand one day. Yeah. Um, Not really, folks. That's a euphemism for something else what guys think about constantly. She ended up giving me a ride home uh, that night from the airport. And I was joking around saying stuff like, uh, we're probably going to have dinner there. We're going to eat there. And she's thinking the whole time, I know we are because we're going to get married. She knew right away. Wow. Um, so anyway, I went to her New Year's Eve party and uh, we started dating. But as as I usually say, we've been together since the moment we met. Yeah. Yeah. So we we're coming up on 19 years this year of marriage. Anyway, so that's how we met. And then we... Uh, we're going to have a family, but I didn't know it was going to happen so quickly. She got pregnant, and then um, five weeks before she was supposed to give birth, she was uh, started bleeding, so we had an emergency C-section, had a very rare thing called placenta accreta, where the placenta grows into the uterus as opposed to 
up to the uterus, and normally it just births out. Well, now it, this, the placenta is trying to birth out, but it's also pulling the uterus apart. So we were on the operating table. Charlie came out fine. We're on the operating table for three and a half hours, and they finally had to take her uterus. I always think that's funny when people say it. Like, I, I picture you both on the table. Oh, right, right. <laughs> no, we were sitting there praying yeah. and joking yeah. at the same time. Really? Because, mm-hmm. you know, it's it, you're basically in shock. Yeah. You know, she's bleeding out. We're at Cedar sinai Thank God they have a huge blood bank, so always give blood to Cedars sinai folks. Or just give blood in general. It does save lives. Um, although that's a controversial subject these days, too, because blood banks sell blood. And sometimes they'll take out the plate. We don't have time. That's that's for another guest, not me. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I'm never distracted. Uh, they had to take her uterus to save her life. Yeah. Your ovaries are on the outside of the uterus, so she still had her ovaries. And they said, you know, you can still have your own children. Someone else will just have to carry them. So we investigated surrogacy. You go to an agency. Uh-huh. You sign up. You give them a shit ton of money. They match you with a surrogate, a woman who's already had children of her own, blah, blah, blah. They're basically just renting their uterus. Right. And so. Airbnb. Airbnb. Yeah. Baby BMV. Uh, we uh, uh, pulled em- uh, eggs from my, my wife's uh, uh, ovaries. We got 11 embryos that day, used the first three, and we put it in a surrogate, and we got our daughter Margot, and then we froze the other eight, and I thought, well, we've got a boy and a girl. We're good. Uh-huh. And my wife was like, those are babies that are frozen. I'm like, oh, my God. So a couple <laughs> years later, we thawed out the next group, contracted with another surrogate, uh, we thought out the first group of four, there are only three viable, because uh-huh. uh, that's just the naturally what happens. They'll either, you know, uh, uh, start to fragment or they'll keep uh, multiplying. And so we put three in, only two, and two took, and then so we got the twins. So now we have two boys and two girls, and I'm definitely like, we're good. Mm-hmm. But we had four embryos still frozen, and my wife was like, those are babies. I'm like, oh, my God. And so I was 47. <laughs> I was like, okay, let's, let's you know, because I, I can't make that moral choice for her, right? Yeah. So I said, okay, let's try it, thinking this has been 10 years now that they've been frozen. Yeah. And we thought them out. Only one was viable. And we put that in the next surrogate, and boom, we got Eve. Wow. And that's how we had five. That's amazing. Yeah. And no embryos left. Where We've worked through all of them. Clearly, our our issue is not infertility. The freezer in your house, is it full or empty? <laughs> With embryos? Uh, we have two refrigerators. I think they're both full. Like nothing gets wasted. Like this turkey's ten years old. No it's still a turkey. Still a turkey. We're making it. Um, you know what? It's here's the interesting part. Well, I mean that's all interesting, but um, the last four children were all conceived on the same day. They were all created on the same day and born out over ten years. Wow, Isn't that's that amazing. Isn't that crazy? So yeah, in a weird way, they all have the same birthday. Yes, Not I told birthday, them. I, the I told same, them that the other day. They yeah. were all made on the same day. And how they feel about that? They're they're still you know they don't know how to process it. They're just like what information am I getting? Huh? So how do they get along? Well, like any kids, you know they yeah. they fight and then they play and then they fight and then they play. I just wondered if there was some kind of different bond between. Them. Oh no, yeah. no, they're normal. There's one set of twins, which you know that's an added pressure, as any twin will tell you. Yeah. You know, it, a lot of times it's fun to have a twin, but a lot of times you don't feel like you're having your own. Uh, individual experience. I remember early when the twins, when I would, I would, you know, you do the things, what you're trying to do in my mind, I try to do things on time. Like, you know, now it's time to learn to catch a ball. Mm-hmm. Now it's time to learn to ride a bike. And I'd always do it with them together. And it would never last more than five minutes. One of them would get mad. I'm like, what in the, come on, this is, 
dad time. Right. Then I realized, oh, they don't want to do it together. I remember uh, my son throwing down his bike mm-hmm. and storming into the house. And then Audrey was happy. She's like, oh, great. Let's, let's keep doing it. Let's keep learning. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, they just want me alone. They don't want to do this together. Mm-hmm. So that's, I'd say, one of the things that's difficult about being a twin. Plus, they go to school together, you know. Audrey feels somewhat responsible for Sergeant. We found out last year that uh-huh. in kindergarten, Audrey unpacked Sergeant's backpack every day. Because <laughs> he wouldn't do it right, right? Sergeant's a boy. He didn't yeah. care. He'd throw it down, didn't go on the peg where it was supposed to. Uh-huh. He didn't put it in his little box or whatever. So she would do it. That's so so hilarious. And did you repack it at the end of the day? <laughs> that I don't know. <laughs> so I've always said that Sergeant will be either a bachelor for life uh-huh. or the greatest husband ever made. You seem like you love being a dad. Well, I, it's the better choice. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm at the point now where we're thinking of having a kid. Uh huh. So I'm I'm terrified about it, but I think that's because I always get the impression that it's very tough on my dad having us. How many do you have? I'm one of four. Yeah, we had six. So, yeah, it's hard. There's no question. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, you know, it changes your life. And uh, you just have to remind yourself all the all the blessings that come along with it. Uh, it's very difficult. It costs a lot of money. Uh, it'll try your patience. So, I mean, you know, people that don't have kids and know they don't want to have kids, uh, God bless you. You know, I think there are a lot of people feel like just because they're married, they kind of have to. Mm-hmm. Like, no, you don't. You don't have to. Are you trying to talk me out of it? No. Because I feel, I, uh, no, I feel no, no, like no. I'm, I'm, okay, no, well. No, not at all. Forget it's, it. it you know, but it's it's one of those things like you, you've got to want to do it, you know? I want to, but I'm terrified about it. Well, and, how old's your wife? Uh, she's 28. Oh, you, she's got time. But yeah, um, to me, I was never terrified about it. I just figured, you know, humans have been raising kids for, what, uh, let's see, is it 100,000 years? How long? 60,000. Humanity. I don't know. You? I, I have no. I don't keep good track of time. Okay. But, you know, uh, we've managed to make it this far. Yeah. So I figured if most people that I know, and not most people, there are a lot of people that you and I know who aren't bright and are able to raise kids, I figure we can probably do it. Is it harder when you have more kids, or is it like, oh, I already have kids, it's, it's not that much different? A little bit of both. Um you know what you're doing in a way, so it's less hard, but uh, there are more of them, so it's hard. You know, you got to get a bigger car, you've got to keep paying expenses, you got to get to school, you got to get childcare, you've got to get, you know, you got to pay for it. But this, but the system's already in motion. Well, you're you're constantly figuring that out. The system, in terms of, you know, the hardest thing is is discipline and um, um, parenting, right? You know, we, we, all, we all have this idea of what it takes to be a good parent. And really, to me, the number one thing it takes is patience because that's the hardest part. There's a quote by Michelangelo that says, genius is eternal patience. And I get it because this guy would stare at a block of stone, right? Mm-hmm. And then divine from that block of stone an amazing, beautiful piece of art. So... That's what I do. I just stare at my kids. <laughs> no, but the, that's the most difficult thing is to start tr- chipping away at them. Chipping away. Truly yeah. have that patience to engage 
at the level that they need. And I don't mean spoil them. I mean give them attention. Because these days especially, we're all distracted. Mm-hmm. There's a thousand things pulling our attention. And, you know, being in show business, I, I, I don't, I don't want to pretend it's, it's more distracting, but it takes a lot of energy because we're always looking for work. You know, I would love to tell you. Now, look, I'm very blessed and I'm very fortunate. I do get offered a lot of work, but you do have to keep pursuing it. You're, you're like a shark. You've got to keep moving or you'll sink to the bottom. So it takes, that takes a, a, a great deal of my brain power day to day to keep the, the boat moving forward. Um, so, you know, to divorce yourself from those things and really be present in a home and give them the, the attention they need is oftentimes difficult. Because, you know, show business in L.A., you could still get a call till 7 o'clock if, you know, your agents are still working till 7, right? Um, so in my mindset is I'm still working till 7 generally. Yeah. But the kids are home at 3.30, and then, you know, Eve, she's 6, so maybe she wants to jump on the trampoline. Like, let's go, Dad. Why aren't you playing with me? So you have to have this, uh, got, tons and, then, and tons of energy. It, it hurts to go, I can't do it right now, hon. How, how um, was your childhood? Oh, well, I was one of uh, six kids, and my father was a manufacturer. He manufactured turkey coops, which are uh, livestock trailers for turkeys. Did you have turkeys in the house? No, 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 no. We, he was a manufacturer of, of, of livestock I know, trailers. I was just wondering, oh, you know, just kind of know the clientele. You know, you no, know, we keep didn't. Keep turkeys no, around. No, no. I have chickens in my backyard. You do? Yeah. That's amazing. I have six chickens. I've been raising chickens for years. Wait, where do you live? In By Culver City. Do you have a big backyard? Yeah. Huh? Does that does the do the neighbors know? They've have they got to know because there's clucking going on. And did you have a, a nice big backyard? Nice big backyard, okay. and I don't buy eggs. I go out in the morning and collect them. God bless you. Yeah, yeah. And, and then you, and then my brother was like, "You should get a goat." And I've been thinking I want to get a goat, but I, they're too loud the way they scream. Yeah, and you know what? That's a lot to clean up after. Getting a goat just takes it to a whole nother level. Yeah, now I'm you're a, farming. That's... Yeah, you are farming. <laughs> and you've got, you, now you've just got goat shit everywhere. <laughs> goat shit constant. And you ever look in a goat's eyes? They're scary. Yeah, you don't do that. Yeah. Don't do it. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I had a good childhood, I would say. So my father was a manufacturer, and I worked since I was seven years old. So my childhood, in my mind. What'd you do? Uh, I would. So he had a, a, a plant, you know, a welding shop, mm-hmm. uh, more than a shop. It was, you know, like these are large trailers that he built. He had 10 employees and uh, one secretary. And so I would do stuff like make small, I, I would do some small metal fabrication, mm-hmm. which would be a part for the turkey coop racks that were being built. Uh, like I, I, I do one small loop of this, this thing for the door that slides up and down on one of the 188 compartments for the livestock, uh, mm-hmm. trailer. Uh, or I would count out bolts and nuts cause you'd have to bag them up for another product he made, which were gas barrel stands or for farrowing crates. He made several different farm implements. Did you say this was in Missouri? Yeah. 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 So to me, my childhood was go to work. Yeah. Um, Missouri is just like it's also it's a it's a whole other world there. Yeah, I I was there not long ago. All right, and, uh, it's a it's like another country. Uh, I guess I mean you know to me I was like that's where I grew up so that's what I know. And when you leave it, you're like oh wow that was very conservative. Did you think about show business as a kid? Yes, uh, I knew when I was ten years old. I have a distinct memory of walking around the west side of my house thinking I've got to move to the city. I mm-hmm. knew I had to get out of this small town. Did you like the? Did you like your home life? Or 
Well, I, I wasn't fond of the small town life. I what wanted, didn't you like about it? Everybody knew everybody's business, and there, I just didn't feel like there was a great exchange of ideas. And I, I didn't quite feel like I knew enough people that thought the way I did. Just a, like a bigger, you know, didn't look at life in the big picture. Um, there wasn't a lot of aspiration to greater things. People well, were content with what they had, and yeah. To me, I was like, I want, I want something to happen. I want to do something. You know, yeah. I was, I was a poli sci major. Okay. Uh, when I finally went to college, uh, like finally, well, I went to college because I thought I was going to go out and help people, right? And well, you do. Well, yes, but thank you. Uh, but in politics, you don't really. That's mm -hmm. you know, it's a completely different business. And it took me a while to figure that out. I was a bit naive, um, but I'd always wanted to be an actor. But I, you know, growing up in a small town, I'd never met one. I had no access to, this is before the internet, I had no idea how a person goes about doing that. I'd never met an actor. Mm -hmm. You only see them on television. We only had three uh, television stations growing up there in Tipton. Uh, my folks didn't have cable. Um, so really, you know, aspirationally, is like, I don't know. You know, that seems like, okay, people do that. Plus, it wouldn't necessarily have been encouraged it would have been more like, you know, laughed at, I think. Was it a religious home? Well, yeah, very Catholic. Are you still a religious man? No. Not at all? Well, we are, our kids go to Catholic school. Uh, it's much cheaper. It's cheap? S oh, yeah. Schools out here in California, if you go to private school, like, look, for instance, the public school that is near our home uh, is, uh, does not have a high rating. And so we really felt that would be a disservice to our children to send them to a school that, 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 wasn't necessarily going to be the best situation for them. And out of all the private schools, this was the cheaper option. Right. Well, we went to one private school when we just had two kids, and it was about $22,000 a year. And that was uh, 12 years ago. Uh -huh. And then as we kept having more kids, we're like, oh, we got to switch. So went to Catholic school. It's only $5,000 a kid. So it's remarkably but, cheap. But they install a Jesus app in them. That's the <laughs> Well, you know what? It, it's less dogmatic than it was when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. When I was growing up and went to a Catholic school, it was taught by nuns. And, um, you know, all the cliches about nuns being tough are that, true. Is that what turned you off it? Yeah. Well, we had to go to church every day. Every single day we had to go to church before mm -hmm. school. I mean, that's enough to go, hey, man, I ain't digging this. And I don't know if you've ever been to a Catholic Mass. It's the same thing every day. <laughs> I haven't. I don't, I don't dig the whole shame thing. That's a lot of religions based on shame. Yeah, it's a shame. Uh, in about sixth grade, I started realizing when you're studying, you know, uh, ancient Greek, uh, ancient Greece and ancient Rome, well, those people all really believed their gods were real. And, you know, when we look at that now, you're like, well, that's just ridiculous. So I started thinking, well, wait a minute. Now, how come I'm so sure that what I'm being taught is the truth? Because those people, you know, 1,500 years, 2,000 years before me were sure that that happened. And then you start investigating your head mm -hmm. miracles like, really? Do you believe in God? And I believe in a... a uh, universal connectivity. I believe in spirituality. You have to have uh, uh, a search for a greater truth. And what I, I, I feel like you have to have a search for a universal truth. And I will tell you that if you get down on your knees and pray, you can see results. What do you think that's from? 
I think it's uh, from allowing your your mind to open up to the possibility of something, allowing something to happen. Now, a lot of this has been covered in what many people might call new age spirituality. You know, what do they call it, the secret or whatever that is. There is something to that type of thing because you can divine good things and you can push them away. That definitely, you know, negativity brings more negativity. Positivity brings more positivity. If you're positive, you're going to gra- you, more positive people are going to gravitate towards you. If you're negative, then you know people will avoid that. And I've yeah. I've, been, I've been both in my life. Me too. Yeah, I fluctuate. Me too. It's a constant fight for me. I, I'm always trying to stay positive. And it goes back to having patience with yourself. So if you can have patience with yourself, then you can have patience with possibility. Then you can have patience with your children. How about that? I brought that whole motherfucker right back around. I love it. <laughs> I, I mean, I think about this, too, because my my dad, who who I love, is a very negative guy. Uh-huh. He's always caught in depression and anxiety and negativity. That might be chemical. It is. Uh-huh. And I, I believe I have some of that, too. I know I do. Sure. And also, I feel like my dad programmed me. Yeah. I grew up around when you're you absorb everything as a kid. I was just thinking about this because I'm thinking a lot about having kids. Uh-huh. It's on my mind now, and I was thinking maybe one of the cool things that I I would like to do is tell somebody about stuff for the first time. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's got to be kind of fun to tell a kid about, like a well, maybe not a chair, but you know, maybe I'll think about something he might not have seen. Tell him for the first time. You make every first impression. That's exciting. Well. I hate to break it to you, but you're not going to get to. Why? Because there is a thing called an iPad. <laughs> and so. What that, about before they get iPad age? Uh, iPad age is now two. Oh, really? No, you Forget don't have it. to. Here's what I'm, happens. I'm calling the whole Just thing because on. it's available and easy. Yeah. And now anybody out there that wants to judge is like, I wouldn't do that. Yeah, mm-hmm. you will. You know, when we were growing up, or when I was growing up, they were cautioning about the dangers of television and spending too much time in front of the television is going to do this and this and this to you. And it didn't. It didn't, you know, it didn't cause anybody. I mean, maybe it caused someone, but it wasn't this, you know, crisis level yeah. uh, epidemic that was kind of being predicted. But now the same thing with computers, and you could be in, in you know, all of our, all of our devices the thing there that's different is when you were watching television together as kids, you were together. Mm-hmm. Now what happens is they become uh, independent with their own device, so they're not sharing anything together. That's the danger. Is that to, a shame? Do you think yeah, it's a, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. It, it causes, I think, a disconnect with kids. Now, the uh, irony there, too, is they're more connected because now they're talking to all their friends all day long. Look, we can't battle against it. I can't end it. I can't say, put it down. You you, you know, of course you can, but mm-hmm. that's not how life works. That's not realistic. Um, that's what is happening in the world today. So what we will see is what we'll see. In 20 years, we will know what it did. Um, you know, I think their their bigger concern is it's hurting people's vision, staring at computers all day long. Mm-hmm. Uh, will there be a higher incidence of of carpal tunnel, or will there be smaller micro uh, tunnel injuries, stuff like that? Mm-hmm. But now they have all access to all information at all the time. There was a, a book called uh, Singularity by uh, Ray Kurzweil, and he talks about in the future. Um, 
they're going to they're going to put a computer in your brain. It'll be the size of a blood cell, right? And mm-hmm. you'll have all access to all information at all time. You know, you could be looking up my uh, Wikipedia right now in your mind. I'd have the little wheel yes, turning in mind. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. The the one where the computers yes. paused and Oh, uh, yeah, just yes. But <laughs> you would, you would probably be able to diagnose and treat whatever depression you're having. If you had the first start of a cancer cell in your body, your computer would notify you of that. And uh, so it will cure a lot of things. But at the same time, uh, he also cautions that it will cause wars because there's going to be plenty of people that don't want that to happen and go on. And then it's always about money. How can someone monetize this thing? Because if you have all access to all information all time around the planet, well, the people that are being, you know, uh, terrorized and or repressed are going to rise up and say, no, 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 no. We don't have to put up with this shit anymore. Mm-hmm. And then someone's going to be able to hack into everybody's bank account. So, I mean, you know. The, Ultimately, the, it seems like it's gone all even out because it, it, it everybody could. will have the same, once again, we'll all be on the same playing field. Right. And then somebody will figure out how to get a better processing system. Yes. And I'll just have to keep restarting myself. Yes. They'll, they'll monetize you know. it. Someone will. Yeah. Plus then, you know, can someone then control all of your choices? I mean, yeah. there's plenty of dangers to it. Too. To some extent, people already are controlling our choices. Absolutely. I mean, when you think about the legislation last week about the, them selling off our ISPs, incredible. They're going to have your search history and they can start selling you stuff. Like, wouldn't you mm-hmm. like this? Or, you know, you might try to buy one thing and they, they, they won't let you buy it because someone else controls that stream. Like, that's out, but you can yeah. buy this and it could be a lie. I've been working on a joke because I feel like, I think um, the the Facebook thinks I'm mentally handicapped because the stuff they market me is always the stupidest stuff. I, I keep getting these ads that say for T-shirts that just say "I'm a Danny" on them. Wow, <laughs> wow! Yeah, I feel like they're insulting my intelligence. Right, right. <laughs> I'm just gonna walk around with a shirt that says "I'm, I'm a, a I'm a, a I'm a Danny." Yeah, hi, I'm oh a Danny. Oh my god! <laughs> well, I mean, it certainly influenced yeah. the last election with all this. Uh, all the trolling and the uh, the fake, the truly fake news. Yeah, you know they planted so many stories about Hillary. I mean, people are still like, I hated her. Like for what? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, how do these people hate her so much that they were allowing this psychopath in the White House? It's really I mean, astonishing. They, they channel to people's hate towards anything, and then they'll channel it towards a person or a thing. A, yeah, it's well, not, it's it's not hard about, to get people to hate anything. They missed the amount of discontent that was going on in the country. And how a person who's a politician could miss all of that and not somehow find out a way to connect with the disenfranchised and the way that uh, Trump did it was by lying to everybody and then saying, inferring things like basically scapegoating, saying it's the brown people that are the problem. Because everyone he attacked or insinuated against was brown. Mm-hmm. Mexicans... Muslims, all thought about as brown people. He would often talk in code about urban areas, mm-hmm. black people. So he was able to tap into this, you know, white nationalism right. and this white discontent because they're losing their head of the tables. Like, just because you're white these days, you don't get to fucking get a pass anymore. you got to work hard for it, too. It's getting equalized, and they don't like it. But just to go back for a second to, to the idea of hate, uh, I think that this— Race definitely plays into it, but I think a lot of it is what you're talking about, that discontent. People are discontent with their lives, yeah. with their marriages, with their with their lot, and they're and they're not in therapy and they're and they're emotionally hurt and they have all this anger and they don't know where to put it. They don't want to put it on themselves, they don't want to put it on, on their families, 
So you 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 paint somebody and say hate this person, right? You give them and, and then yeah, you give them a focus to hate on. Oh, great! I, I yeah. could I could hate her. I could hate him. And 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 in the meantime, we don't even know these people, right? So no, and they they're not taking your jobs, and they're not uh, here to kill you. You know, this this has all been proven. Uh, there's you know there's more domestic terrorism than than yeah. someone from another country, um, and by and large, the people that have committed acts in the United States were born here these terrorist acts. Um, and plus, I, you know, going back to mass media, and I, I think, you know, having, maybe I'll diffuse my own argument, having access to all of these things, uh, and you get this idea that you should have everything. You should have an easy life. And then people tend to not save like they used to, and they weren't patient enough to wait to buy something. Mm-hmm. They had to have it now. Which, you know, even now, we all have the, the latest phone. Right. Which is ridiculous. We had the same fucking phone in my house <laughs> my entire life. Yeah. And the only upgrade we got was from a rotary phone to a push button phone. It scares me when I'm able to like get because I'm I'm a fairly broke person, and when I ha- when I'm able to get stuff, I'm like, uh oh, something. There's a bubble that's gonna burst. Mm-hmm. It, you know, I'm happy to get it, but. I'm like, wait a minute. How come I have this? Yeah. Well, there's a reset. How, how come I have this phone? Like you said, you know. Yeah. I'm like, this isn't this isn't right. Something's up. Something's suspicious, because I remember having to work for things as a kid to get them, and it took, you know, it took me like two summers to buy this sound system that I wanted to get, and now it's just like, well, what happened to that? You get credit. It, yeah. And then they, it, it's they, all going to come tumbling down. I feel they, again. They put you, well, it did. Again. It, it it's going to come of down again. It will. Of course it will. Yeah. And the rich will get richer. And that's just the way it goes. But that's always been the case. The wealthy always get wealthier. And then, you know, someone rises up and say, we have to put a stop to this. And it works for a little while. And then uh, it slowly slides back to where it is, where, yeah. the, you know, the 1% get more and more and more and more uh, and get insanely rich, which shouldn't be allowed, quite frankly. I don't mm-hmm. know what the value of having super rich is. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I think the tax rate on the super rich used to be like 90%. Once you buy an island, then what? You're, you're going to lose all your money. <laughs> well, once you have a $100 million dollar yacht, then what? Yeah. You, now you're completely disconnected from what is normal. Um, At one point, I realized just the only thing that was making me want to be rich was that I didn't have a hammock. And I got... <laughs> You wanted a hammock. Yeah. All right, there you I go. I got a hammock. There you go. Now you and need an island to put it on. <laughs> <laughs> but when I'm in the hammock, I just, you, you feel like a millionaire. No, oh, there you go. You know, you just, you're just in the hammock, and you're like, you know, what could be better than this? Right, you and the breeze. So, anyway, I, w- I yes. wanted to go back to, to you're a poli-sci major. Yes. And, and what, how did that not pan out? Well, I realized that I wasn't going to be in politics once I started getting to the third year. I thought, oh, my God, I'm never going to make senator because I realized that to actually be successful in politics, you either have to be very wealthy, mm-hmm. or you have to be from a political family, or you have to be the smartest guy in, a, uh, in the room anytime you walk into any room. And I'm none of those things. So I kind of lost my lust for politics, and I quit going to my classes. So if you don't go to your classes... But you're still very political as I talk to you now. Yeah. You, you're very fired up politically. I'm not... Yeah. You know, I almost feel... Uh, Bad because I've, I've, I'm not as politically charged. I never have been. Oh well, that's all right. But 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 you know, I try to to find where I fit into the conversation. Sure. But you obviously have a passion for politics. Right, right. I you know I'm 
marginally active when it comes to it, really. Right. Uh, but then I uh, I quit going to school, and my dad said, well, Dave, I don't know what you want to do, but I don't think you want to go to school. And I was like, all right. And so I bought the car I was driving from my so dad. So wait a minute, your dad said, I don't think you want to go to school. You may as well drop out of school? Well, no, he was done paying for it. Because uh-huh. once I failed out one semester, that was it. He yeah. was, was kind of happy. He's like, well, we gave it a shot. There you go, buddy. Back to the turkey coops. Well, you can either work for me yeah. or you can get a job. And that was it. I mean, he did the right thing. You know, you got to go find out what you're going to do. You're not, yeah, I'm done. Right. I was 21, right? Mm-hmm. And he was like, well, that's it. You know, basically it's true though. You're a man. You can't, you can't just. Now, I think he may have loaned me a little bit of money here and there. You have a good relationship with him? He's passed away. Uh, did you? Sure. I'm sorry. To no, no. Uh, you know, he had a full life. He lived to 80. That was good. He never thought he was going to live that long. Uh-huh. Uh, but we're very different. I mean, but, you know, our personalities are very much alike. And uh, he gave me an amazing work ethic. And uh, he was a, a sweet, kind man. Uh, all those things were a great influence on me. But then I uh, was working in Columbia, Missouri, where the University of Missouri was, where the last college I was attending. And then a buddy and I went up to Chicago to visit a friend, and I went to the second city. To see a show? To see a show, because I'd, I'd known that all the people on Saturday Night Live had come from second city, mm-hmm. uh, or a, a majority of them. And that was the dream? That was the dream. In the back of my head, I wasn't telling anybody this, because, you know, you'd be, you'd be derided. And so I saw the show, I loved it, and on the way out, I saw that they taught classes. Are there any uh, people who were on that show that, that we would know now? Which show? The show that you saw that day. Uh, oh, uh, Richard Kind. Um, I love Richard Kind. Hold on. Uh, who else was in that show? One second. God damn it. My, my, my mind. Homer Simpson. Dan Castellaneta. Yeah. So, um, you know, they had a great cast at the time. You know, you're just thinking, oh, my God, this is the way it works. And then I saw that they taught classes, and it's like a, a light went off. Like, ah, that's how. You mean the light went on? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the light went on. Um, and so I decided, uh, uh, that's this is how you get to do this. You go study here. Okay. Yeah. So I went back to Missouri. I saved my money for a year, and then I moved to Chicago. Ended up taking classes at the I.O. first, Improv Olympic, and then simultaneously at Second City. And so I was doing uh, class or shows probably four or five nights a week. I just completed the Second City Training Center here, here in town, okay, in, in Hollywood, right on where your picture is in oh, the is hallway. It really? Yeah, oh, that's funny. I see it all the time. Now I'm doing the, the, uh, I, I, the their grad review, where okay, you, where you write sketches and put on outstanding a show. But I've been doing that in the background of my life for like the last two years. Right on, yeah, and I love it. Good, yeah. Did yeah, you, it's you all a, about the doing. Did you enjoy being in the classes? And, oh, I loved it. I loved all of it. Absolutely, made the some of the greatest friendships I've ever. It was the, it was the best time of my life. Um, because, uh, you know, you're having, it was like grad school. I was 24 when I started cause I moved up to Chicago and it took me six months to, you know, get on my feet, you know, get a job, get a place to stay, all that stuff, save enough money to start taking classes, get the right job that I could take classes. All what that were stuff. you doing? What was the job? Uh, the first job I had, I was a restaurant manager at a Bob Evans uh-huh. and I was working about 60 hours a week. And I had no time for anything. <laughs> uh-huh. So uh, I was not getting paid well. And so I was like, I no gotta, kidding. Uh, yeah, <laughs> at a Bob Evans, <laughs> I gotta get the fuck out of here. So I got a job waiting tables at a Bennigan's, I think. Uh-huh. And it was 
immediately more money. Yeah, than <laughs> managing. Know? It was like $300 yeah. a week was all it took. But then I didn't have to drive out to the suburbs and pay a toll every day. Anyway, uh, then I slowly started taking one class and then another and then started performing more and more. Because this was before the improv explosion. You could get on stage within two months. Wow. Now it takes two or three years. It's incredible. Sure, yeah. So we're, you're probably losing a lot of talent because people can't get stage time because there are so many people doing it, right? Mm -hmm. It's crazy. Um, anyway, I, ha I came at the right time and had access to a lot of great minds and uh, a lot of great growth in my personal life, just learning so much and being around. Uh, you know, People, I think, a lot of times think actors aren't, are all just egotistical and aren't that bright, but the brightest people I've met have been in show business. Now, I read that you trained under a now famous teacher, Del Close. Yeah, yeah. Now, I've heard the name for many years yeah. and people talk about him like uh like uh he was a, a guru of yeah. sorts well he was um so can you tell me why in a word uh it's he true uses many as well, well no i mean you know you could, I, I tend to ramble so i'm gonna try and keep it tight uh basically dell's thing was truth and comedy and if you have honesty when you're doing comedy you're always gonna win but how you, is he teaching that differently than anybody else um, because he had a, a charismatic way about him that you really, me personally, I really wanted to do it the way he uh, was espousing. And that uh, the other thing that I got from it was that comedy is important. And so you don't just fuck off. You try to make it as great as you can. What did he say that made I'll you feel you, it's important? I'll tell you this. Treat your audience as poets and artists and then they might have the chance to become them. You don't treat your audience like they're a bunch know. of pigs and idiots. You want everything to be uh, the level of poetry, basically. Give me an example of somebody who really embodies that. Adam McKay, I would say. Mm -hmm. uh, he's the, one of the brightest guys I've ever met. He's amazing. Uh, he's bright. He's socially aware. And I think, to me, you know, his his... Comedy's always so super textured and layered. Right. You know, I love always, his work too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's got so much going on. And you so, met him at Second City. Yes. Well, at the I.O. Uh huh. Yeah. And and you and is he one of those uh, guys that you became friends with right away? Uh, I was a couple years ahead of him, and so it took a, a minute. Uh, but yeah, the first time we met was on an L in uh, Chicago, heading from downtown to up north. And he introduced himself and said, uh, you know, oh, we're both at the I.O., blah, blah, blah. He's just a, an amazing, charming guy and so bright and funny. You're immediately just taken with him. But basically everybody I know I thought was, was, was aspiring to that level. I mean, I came, I, I was fortunate to come up with a lot of people at the same time that are huge media influencers now. I mean, when I was in Chicago, it was, uh, you know, uh, uh, Andy Dick was there, Andy Richter, uh, Amy Poehler, Tina Fey, all the people mm -hmm. that started UCB. Um, you know, that's Matt Walsh, Ian Roberts, uh, Matt Besser, Amy Poehler, sure, sure. Horatio Sands, um, uh, Rachel Dratch was there, Kevin Dorff, who's a writer on Conan, Brian Stack, who's a writer on Conan, and uh, John Glazer, who's not only a writer, but has created a bunch of shows, Stephen Carell, Steve Colbert. Um, so you guys all the, came up together. Yes, yes, we're there at the same time. Now, you you know, you look back and you're like, wow, all these people are great that I'm playing with. You had no idea that they were all going to make such an impact. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, when I was leaving town, I had lunch with a guy named Bernie Silence, who's one of the people that created Second City, and he had t- retired, but we went and had lunch, and he'd said he'd never seen such a confluence of talent as he had in the, the previous 10 years, mm-hmm. uh, which is the a, the time when I was there. It was yeah. really incredible. It was a, sort of like the heyday. Yeah, and I would say that all of those people I mentioned have aspirational comedy. You know, they don't, they don't want to just do the same joke. They want, they want it to be as good as it can be. You know, something aspirational, right? Inspirational. So one of the things that you took away from Del Close was that the importance of comedy yeah. and, and treating the audience with this respect. Mm-hmm. And uh, what are some other things that he said to you that you would say, this is what made him a great teacher? This, is, this was eye-opening for me. He always wanted you to play to the top of your intelligence. That's the other thing. Mm-hmm. Top of your intelligence. Don't be stupid. Now, unless if you're stupid, be the smartest stupid guy there is. Don't just play dumb. Which I think is great about the characters that you've <laughs> done. You, you you play the smartest stupid guy I, better than anybody. That's intentional. Yeah. Because you know these people still have a life and they believe in what they're doing. Yeah. And I always hope that they're a little bit complicated. You know, I love that that Champ Kind was, you know, closeted, mm-hmm. that he was gay. And because a lot of people would think they know who Champ Kind is and he's their kind of guy. I was like, really? Do you know he's also <laughs> attracted to men? He's a very complicated yeah. person, right? He's yeah. filled with rage. He's an alcoholic. He's afraid, but at the same time bold and at the same time in love with another man. Maybe yeah. it's just the one man. Or is it the idea of the man? You know. So what do you I, think if 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 Champ had gone to therapy? Oh, he'd have gotten a fight with the therapist. You yeah. mean? Yeah. But but could that character ever really go through therapy and kind of like unravel it all and figure it oh, out? Oh, he would cry every time and talk about his father. Uh-huh. But in the end, he would have to end it with an argument or a fight and say, <laughs> "What are you trying to do to me?" And he would sneak a bottle in. Yeah. Yeah. Because he, he could never, he'd, he'd he could sh- never. No, no, no. He's in deep denial. <laughs> he'd show up drunk, or he'd excuse himself and go to the bathroom uh, halfway through and drink a half a bottle of vodka, so then come so, back. So yeah. maybe, so it seems almost like the alcohol is what the fact that he's alcoholic is the reason that he can't sort of break through to sort of well, have just, some kind of self awareness. Right. Well, he's never had self awareness. He's right. not self reflective at all. I know. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm wondering what, what would it take for that character. If you're, if we're now saying that's a real, real person playing mm-hmm. the truth of that character, yeah. What would it take for that character to sort of gain self awareness, or is that even possible, or is it alcoholism? You feel because well, when that's, you're developing the character, are these questions that you ask yourself? Well, sure, it's whatever is on page and whatever you know as you're, you know, developing the. You know, you keep reading the the script and figuring out who this person is and what motivates them. Or what doesn't motivate them, mm-hmm. or what what's lacking sometimes is just as important as to what is is abundant. But he's got these emotional, he's crippled emotionally, yeah. really, and uh, he's ruled by his emotions and his pain, and so he drowns his pain in in whatever is available. Did you grow up around a lot of people like that? Uh, no more than anyone else. I'm just bring it back to the small town. I wonder if these no, no, I are knew, some of the people that sure. you, I knew alcoholics. You were striving uh, to get away from or something. No, no, no. It wasn't like it. There was no mm-hmm. nothing. There was no there was no trauma. But like any any place, there yeah. are alcoholics, drug addicts. Uh, we used to call them potheads. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so 
there's everybody. Look, substance abuse has has been around since the beginning of mankind. Yeah. Uh, and so you know that's always just a symptom of not dealing with something in your life, right? Sure. Yeah. 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 In my opinion. Yeah. Have you have you had uh, your bouts with substance? Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can I ask you a little bit more about that? Sure. I won't. I won't necessarily be uh, honest about it. You can ask me. All right. Well, that's what I was hoping for. <laughs> so, what, what what substances were we talking about? At what point in your life? Everything. I've done everything. Really? Uh huh. Uh huh. So, so this was when when you were in college. When yeah, you were in my twenties. Uh huh. Yeah, absolutely. And how did you get sober? Oh, I'm not necessarily sober now. No, you're not. I have okay. my bouts of sobriety. Yeah. Uh, the only way to get sober that I've seen that works is AA mm-hmm. or any, uh, any, you know, AA, NA, any of those things. When did you get started with drugs? Eighth grade. First time I smoked pot. Yeah. First time I got drunk was fifth grade at my cousin's wedding. Oh, okay. They had a champagne fountain and nobody was attending it. So my cousin Bruce and I kept going over those little plastic champagne glasses mm-hmm. and getting into the champagne fountain yeah and we had several glasses and i remember uh feeling very lightheaded and my my knees went out from under me while i was walking down some stairs uh-huh. and i slid on my knees thank god it was a carpeted stairs and i remember sliding on my knees down about 20 stairs going wow uh so yeah yeah but then yeah i mean you know uh small town that's what you're going to do. People just get drunk on the weekend. Sure. And then in Second City, were you were you sort of uh, still still fighting drinking? through it? Uh, drinking? Fighting? Doing no, drugs I didn't or? fight it. I oh, invited okay. it. <laughs> no, no. Look, okay. uh, I had plenty of people that were heavy drinkers and very successful. Um, that still goes on everywhere. Yeah. Uh, now, I think you you probably have the, the best advantage uh, in any life being more sober than drunk mm-hmm. um, because that's just the best way to to accomplish things. It gives you more energy and, and makes you more clear, obviously, yeah. if you're sober. Sure. Or if you only take things in moderation. When were you doing uh, the harder drugs? Probably through my 20s. Yeah. yeah. And was this when you were at, in Chicago? Uh, Columbia and then Chicago. More in Columbia, probably. I had some buddies that... Uh, uh, <laughs> How honest should I be? Fuck it. Uh, I've 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 done heroin. Yeah, yeah. And what was what was that experience? Uh, it was uh, revelatory. Now I I hesitate to say anything good about it because there's a heroin epidemic. I was never a guy that got hooked. I used it a couple of times recreationally, and it was nothing I ever did on a second day. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So that's how you get hooked, right? You do it one day, then you do it. You don't get immediately hooked. People these days get a a, a uh, opioid addiction through pills first, and then they get addicted to heroin oftentimes because it's much cheaper. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's more powerful, and then the way you ingest it is, you know, so much more immediate and dangerous and then then your body gets chemically dependent on it and you just have to start chasing it and then you die yeah well you said you don't want to say anything good about it because of the epidemic are there good things you have to say about other drugs um it's all up to every person i mean if you feel like that's something you want to go through then you can i i don't want to um i would never want to influence someone to pursue uh something that might harm their body right so I would caution against anything. If you can 
live with yourself and be happy without any other substance, and you could even include caffeine if you want, yeah. then your whole life could potentially be better. But some people enjoy recreational drugs and it helps them. Um, you know, some Was people, it mind expanding for you, any of it? Sometimes. Yeah? Yeah. Can you give me an example? No, I don't want to say anything good about it. <laughs> I really don't yeah, yeah. want anyone, because I'm a dad, I don't want anyone taking drugs ever because David Keckner said it was good. Yeah. I don't want to do that. I don't want my kids to take drugs. I don't want... But I, I wonder if that's a th like somebody would actually go from being a sober person to doing drugs just because they heard about uh, an interesting thing on a podcast. I have no idea. I got I got to think it goes deeper than that. Well, yeah. I mean, if someone's doing any substance, there's they're not dealing with something else, right? Yeah. Um, but everyone's a free person. They can do what they want, and they're going to anyway. But I don't... Look, I yeah. don't want to romanticize it. You know? Sure, okay. Were you doing drugs when you were on SNL? Uh, maybe. Okay. Never, never performing. Yeah. Never performing high. No, no. You were there for a year. Yeah. So you get hired for SNL. Yes. Is this right out of Second City in Chicago? Yes. And uh, so this was the dream realized yeah. that you finally wind up there. Mm -hmm. And then uh, tell me about that experience, about getting hired and, and what it was like. Uh, it was fantastic. Uh, like that, I in my mind, I knew I was getting hired. Mm -hmm. uh, I always, I'd set that as a goal. And I, so for, to, for me, as a fait accompli, like this is going to happen. It's how did, how did the audition come about? Uh, they had come to Chicago to scout people and I was scouted and uh, invited out to audition. You get the one audition and then you either get a call back or you don't. I got called back and- And uh, you knew this is it, I'm getting it. Yeah, in so my you had mind. great confidence. Yes, I did. And then, uh, and then you got hired. Then I got hired. And then move to New York, and you start working. And then, you know, it, it's, it was, I had my eye on a different target than I should have. Well, I, well I wanted the show to be better. <laughs> I wanted the whole show to be better. Yeah. So I would sometimes not be happy with their choices of what they're putting on the air. But really, it, it's such an individual show. You've got to just say, I've, it's, this is wrestling, and I've got to get over and do whatever it takes. Mm -hmm. But to me, I was like, look, I'm just going to do good stuff. I don't want to do shit on this show. Yeah. Now, they came to me several times about a talk show for one of those characters I did, Gerald. They'd say, um, how about a Gerald talk show? I'd say, no, that's what's wrong with this program. We have too many fake talk shows. Let's do scenes. <laughs> yeah. Now, they don't want to fucking hear that from me. <laughs> <laughs> so I was a bit contentious, yeah. uh, and I had pissed off yeah. another this one writer. I called him a hack, and he then made it kind of his mission to to I think get rid of me. And were uh, you just in a very self destructive place? In no, general? no, 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 no. So, no, so, so no, what? What do you think it was about? Oh, I was a bit stubborn, mm -hmm. and I didn't have my eye on the target of just just get over, just whatever yeah. it takes. Because it's interesting, you know. I've talked to a bunch of people who've been on SNL and. A lot of people are just, oh, I was just so grateful to be there that, you know, it seems like for you, it was, uh, you, you went in almost with an arrogance and you're like, this this, need, this needs me to fix it up. Uh, I, I'd say that's probably yeah. an element of which, the way I was feeling. Which is unusual from, from what I've heard. So Yeah, I, I, I was certainly grateful, but I also felt like I had the license to, you know, uh, hopefully make it better. <laughs> And that's no one gives. It sounds a shit. like you're coming from great intentions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's it was naive. Yeah, yeah. So, so you think that's what what wound up uh, ending the run was this no, fight with the writer? No, 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 no. Uh, West Coast 
let's the first year that there was any competition is in late night real competition is the first year of mad tv and then howard stern had a late night show so the uh, we had a dip in the ratings which gave um nbc west coast an advantage over lauren and they said they wanted some changes to be made and um for whatever reason i guess this guy named don olmeyer didn't particularly care for me oh, he's the same guy who next uh, norm yeah and this is what i was told uh and i don't know if there's any truth to it uh, but lauren wanted to keep me but west coast kind of you know said we wanted to make some changes and so myself and nancy walls who is is steve curl's wife were not renewed but lauren and i had a nice long talk and you know he uh how did that go great he you know it was Clear he wanted me to stay, but there was just, you know, his hands were kind of tied. And um, he told me, Dave, you're an artist. Don't change that. <laughs> he did say that. So that was nice to hear. I'll take that as a compliment. Yeah. Did you maintain a relationship with him after that? Well, Lauren? Yeah. Uh, there was, you know, it's all business. You either have yeah. business together or you don't. Sure. Uh, I'm always grateful. I mean, he gave me my start in, in, in electronic show business. Yeah. So... Always grateful for that. That that set me off on a path. You know, I was able to get work right away. Yeah, just yeah. from from having. I think that. he said something about that. You know that you know you're on the radar, Dave. You'll be fine. Something like that, and mm -hmm. it, it was true. Was I, it comforting in that time, or could you not even hear it? Oh no, no, that was comforting. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it was devastating to not get renewed. I just I was a swirl. Like, what the fuck happened? Yeah, you finally get there, yeah. and as soon as you're there, you're out. And I actually had a very successful season. It was mm -hmm. kind of crazy. I had like four or five recurring characters. I did impressions. I had a successful season by anyone's standard. It's got to be heartbreaking. Oh, it was. It was, it was more confusing than anything. Like, what, what do you mean? I've done all this work. I accomplished the goal. But again, like that, it wasn't up to me. It wasn't anything I did. It really wasn't. There was mm -hmm. nothing I did that took me off the show. It was politics outside of the show and outside of my ability to uh, affect that. Was there anything about being on Saturday Night Live that was very surprising to you once you finally wound up there? Yeah, the process is backward. Like, there were so many good sketches that should have been uh, looked at again, but they're just thrown away. Why is that? I don't know. It's a back-ass process. It's ridiculous. You'll have a table read, and there'll be a sketch that kills at the table, and then they try to mount it, and it might not be successful, or the audience doesn't respond, or it's in the wrong place on the stage. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't play as well, so they don't use it. I, it just confounds me. I don't get it. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I mean, look, you can pull apart anything. But um, obviously things that are working sketch-wise are pre-taped stuff, so they could probably have a, a healthier amount of pre-tape. Um, they do everything in one week. Mm -hmm. And I would say you don't have to. Now, I know you have your, your host that you can use that week, but... Why don't we look at the whole year? Develop the sketches and then yeah. plug the hosts into them. Yeah. I, why wouldn't you workshop the sketches on stage? You know, and have yeah. a bank of sketches that we're, are going to work that we know work. Interesting questions. I, yeah, I don't, uh, it's, you know, but that's the process that they've come upon and uh, it works for them. So right. God bless. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, let's jump into this philosopher. All right. So the philosopher who Alex picked out for you is Alexander Hamilton. All right. Who's Alex? Uh, Alex is a comedian, comedy writer in New York. Okay. Who was a philosophy major. Oh, he was. And he sort of, uh, he gives me our assignment. 
Okay. And Alexander Hamilton, obviously uh, popularized by the stage play, is currently uh, uh, in vogue yeah. in people's minds. What do, what do uh, you Alexander know Hamilton is on the $10 bill. I believe so. Uh, he, I think he is the one who came up with the central bank, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, also uh, uh, one of the authors of the Federalist Papers. Oh, wow, you know. Uh, that's right. I was a polysign Federalist Party. Um, also, the, so the Federalist Papers were public, were articles in the newspaper written by several people arguing for elements of the Constitution. And he was one of the, the, the authors of many of those papers. Okay. Uh, it says here on Wikipedia, it says he was born January 11th, 1755, or 1757. Oh, then he wouldn't have signed the Constitution. Uh, till July 12th, 1804, he was an American statesman and one of the founding fathers of the United States. He was an influential interpreter and promoter of the U.S. Constitution, as well as the founder of the nation's financial system, the Federalist Party, the United States Coast Guard, the New York Post newspaper. He's behind the Post? As, well, for what it was then, probably. <laughs> not page six or what? Yeah. Uh, as the first Secretary of the Treasury, Hamilton was the main author of the economic policies of George Washington's administration. He took the lead in the funding of the state's debt by federal government, as well as the establishment of a national bank, a system of tariffs, a friendly trade relations with Britain. His vision included a strong central government led by a vigorous executive branch, a strong commercial economy, a national bank, support for manufacturing, plus a strong military. Accomplished guy. Yeah. Uh, this was challenged by Virginia, and then it goes on um, from there. And he was born in, in Charleston, out of wedlock, to a married mother of British-French eugenist So at ancestry. the time, he would have been right. called a bastard. A bastard. That bastard boy Hamilton. Also, did he die in a duel? Okay, let's take a look. Because this is the time you'd still have, uh, you'd... you'd uh, Actually, take ten paces and fire. I believe it sounds familiar to me, but I don't. It says he was uh, wounded. Oh yeah, here. Family Ham wounded? Hamilton continued his legal business activities in New York. He was active in ending the international slave trade. Vice President Burr ran for government of New York in 1804, and Hamilton crusaded against him as unworthy. Burr took offense and challenged him to a duel. Burr mortally wounded Hamilton, who died the next day. There you go. And yeah. I've not seen the play. That's how you really make a stand in politics. You go, you go duel, like, you know, go, go, challenge Trump to a duel. I think, I think Andrew Jackson uh, was also a duelist. Not enough duels anymore. Well, that's because it's illegal. <laughs> you challenge we someone to a duel back, now, you're threatening murder. You got to bring back dueling. I think in politics. Uh, so yeah, they, um, Alex said, what you have in common is that you are a, you were a poli sci major. Uh -huh. Uh, and so he picked a political philosopher. Ah, see, I wouldn't. Uh, that's very interesting that your friend, who's a philosopher, thinks of of because when you think of Alexander Hamilton, you do think statesman first, not philosopher. I'm not aware of of, of any books he's penned. I'm not sure. I know he wrote a lot of papers, and he was the author of a lot of the what uh, uh, became the Federalist Papers. I think they all signed it, uh, I Publius or just Publius. Um, he, John Jay, was it Adams as well? There were several authors of the Federalist Papers. Mm -hmm. I've got a book around here somewhere. 
But I guess all all uh, politicians are philosophers to some extent, right? Mm, even even not, Trump, I, you could say mm, he has these philosophies. No, I guess I could I could mount an argument against that. Let's hear it. I wouldn't say what he. I when you I think of a philosopher, I think of someone who uses logic and is able to support an argument or a position. I would say Trump is a, a narcissistic uh, psychopath who is mm-hmm. an opportunist. I don't think that qualifies. But doesn't he have his own philosophies well, on how most, things should be? Certainly in the most general terms, everybody does. Right. I don't think that qualifies him as a philosopher. Does he have a philosophy? Yeah, everybody does. Yeah. And, and what, because it really boils down to, do you have a way of thinking? Well, I feel like the difference between someone with a philosophy and someone who's a philosopher is the spreading of the philosophy. Okay. So you can have a philosophy. It could be a wrong philosophy. It could be irrational. Uh, many of the philosophers that I've discussed, I, okay. I would disagree so are we, with. So we're, we're, we're talking about is we're, we're talking about is he a philosopher you have or your, does he have a philosophy? Right. Everybody has a philosophy. But, everybody. But not it's everybody just, shares their philosophy with really? the world. They try. They, I'd say everybody that walks shares it in some way. Okay. Anybody who tells a joke is not a comedian. But if you start reaching a big enough crowd, you know, you, you could are? say, I'm not a, I don't like that guy. He's not a good comedian. Okay. I wouldn't say he's an artist. But, okay. But, so, but, but let's he'd go back still to be your, a comedian. Yeah. Right? I will but, not give a quarter on Trump. I right, think right. he's a, a horrible danger. Well, I'm not an advocate he's, of his. I'm just he's a tyrant. He's bad for everything. I'm trying to make an argument that a politician who spreads their ideas is probably a philosopher. Okay. I don't know. Maybe maybe he's done more to earn the title that Alex gave about, him to us. But oh, Hamilton. Hamilton. Oh no, I'm just I'm just uh, yeah, I'm just trying to think of. Uh, I mean, he's not someone who comes to mind first as a philosopher. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, that's all I was saying. Oh, all right. I'm not arguing with Alex. I mean, if Alex <laughs> wants to call in, this isn't a call-in show. But Our he, lines are open. Uh, Dan and Dave for, and only for Alex. Dan and Dave in the morning. Uh, Hamilton advocates strong central government. Mm-hmm. It must be unified enough to protect the rights of the people from invaders, but also from the people themselves. Human nature can be selfish. If the people answer to no one, they will oppress weaker groups within themselves or opt for what feels good in the short term. What do you think of that so far? I, I, I believe all of those statements. Okay. An example of this is taxes. People say that they want lower taxes, but if government cannot gather that money, infrastructure will suffer. Right. That's why we get so many potholes. Um, strong government is a compromise between mob rule and dictatorship. I agree with that. The people elect knowledgeable officials who objectively decide the laws. Hopefully, knowledgeable. Uh, the will of the people is taken into account, but kept in check by officials. Officials are in turn kept checked by the voice of the people. What is popular should not overthrow what is truly beneficial. And the people often cannot tell the difference. Right. As the position we're in now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is popular should not overthrow what is beneficial. I think that's the key key line there. Um yeah, what 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 else does that make you think of that paragraph? Anything? <laughs> <laughs> Our current political situation. I mean, uh, you know, Trump's talking about cutting taxes now, and they're they're talking about 
uh, if they cut taxes, and he's you know he's talking about cutting taxes on the wealthy, and saying that's going to stimulate nine percent growth, which is impossible. That hasn't happened. That only happens in developing countries. It doesn't happen in a in, a, in an economy as big as ours. You can't just cut taxes and expect nine percent growth. That's going to offset the loss in tax revenue. Mm-hmm. That's fucking a lie, and they know it. And it's just a way to to enrich the people that that are in power now. Sure. Fuck Tillerson is from Exxon. Yeah. They're still trying to do a deal with with uh, the Russians. You know, there's things waiting and in place. They're just waiting for things to calm down. Shit, uh, there's so much fucking uh, corruption right now. Yeah. You know. Do you think uh, it'll ever get better? Do you think? The political system is just screwed. It has to. You know, they're already destroying a bunch of people's lives by uh, deporting people that are, you know, marginally criminal, I guess. I mean, my God, they were just trying to survive. You know, when you, the irony of it is, you know, the old American way of you pull yourself up by your bootstraps mm-hmm. and you do whatever you can to survive and make a better life for yourself, right? Yeah. Well, that's exactly what a lot of these people that have come to our country from the South have done. Yeah, they're hardworking individuals looking for a better life. Shit, if anything, they're pilgrims. That's what this this country is founded on. Yeah. Anyway, so this weird reaction to it, and and uh, you know, this overreaction to it, and somehow that they're everybody they're, comes here a little criminal. At the you know, the yeah. Italians started the mafia, and when the pilgrims killed off all the Native Americans, right. so right. I mean, it takes so, people a while to settle out of the, you know, yeah, get it, get yeah. it going. But I don't, I don't but, look at a group of people as criminal. Right, they're individuals that are criminal, and has nothing to do with uh, the uh, their race. Of course, I'm talking individuals. I'm not yeah. saying every, yeah, yeah, everybody yeah, who yeah. comes over is a criminal. But anyway, let's get back. Let's get off Trump. He's a fucking prick. Who but, will be impeached? You are obviously, like we said, a guy yes. who's passionate about politics and and knowledgeable about how they work in this country is the system broken yes and and do you think it can get fixed and what would it need to get uh, fixed? you got to get the money out of of politics and that's impossible that's impossible it's impossible it's right. like the it's reason all, that you had to drop out yeah it's all about money uh and so i don't know what it takes to create honest politicians because uh, there's corruption on everything has level. there ever been a country with honest politicians i'm sorry I, I'm sure there have been honest politicians. I'm sure there are some. I now. feel like in in ancient Greece and Rome, the the senates were very corrupt there too. Of course, yeah. So so politics. What's well, part of human nature? But po- power corrupts, as they say. Mm-hmm. You know, I I have the power in my home. Am I judicious with it, or do I make arbitrary decisions on stuff? Probably both. You know, mm-hmm. I make good ones and I make bad ones. Yeah. I make emotional decisions. You mentioned at the top of this interview that. The toughest thing about raising kids is the discipline. Right. And I wanted to ask you about that. I, I got sidetracked. Okay. But, but what, why did you say that? What's, what's the toughest part about discipline? Uh, establishing a precedent and sticking with it, you know, whether you can or can't do one thing. And if you let it slide or, you, you know, you give a consequence and you don't follow through with it. Uh, Maintaining some consistency. Mm-hmm. Uh, establishing boundaries for your children because boundaries make children feel safe. If you never, if you let them get away with everything, they're going to act up more and more and more because they want you to give them a boundary. Mm-hmm. We have a system in our house where if you mess up, you have to work off these cards. They're called consequence cards. And it could be something as simple as sweep the neighbor's porch or do one of your, your siblings' chores. Oh, wow. Or, did you come up with them? My wife did. Okay. Um, or you have to, you know, read a book for 15 minutes or you have to write sentences or you have to sweep the floor or you have to go give everybody in the 
in the family a hug or you have to go give everyone in the family a compliment, stuff like that. You have to work off your consequence cards. Mm-hmm. Some, you know, they're, they're not uh, uh, corporal. Yeah. And so whenever they do something, they get cards. And I will tell you, by the time they're done working off their cards, they feel much happier because they know they're accomplishing something and someone cares enough to give them a consequence and a boundary which makes them feel safer. That's interesting. That's great. I never heard of somebody doing that before. I used to control my little brothers with tickets, which they still resent me for to this day. I once... I went to a, one of those uh, like comic book yeah. store, and they had a big reel of tickets mm-hmm. that you just, you know, like yeah. old-fashioned, you rip off a ticket. So I used to have my brothers do stuff in exchange for tickets for me. Yeah. I'd be like, uh, can you go grab me a drink from the kitchen for three tickets? Right. Or uh, can you help me clean the room for five tickets? Could they ever cash them in for something? Well, that's what they realized. There was nothing. They, they had all these tickets, and they realized there was no value. <laughs> And they still resent me for it. It's fraudulent. I said you should have held on to those tickets. I could have gave you something for them now, but there was no money in the bank. <laughs> there was nothing behind the well, tickets. It's like our current monetary system. Yeah. There's, there's nothing backing the money. Yeah. Except a promise from the government. <laughs> it used to be backed by gold. Yeah. But now it's nothing. My my, my ticket promise. system was just as good as U.S. Same, currency. You're exactly right. <laughs> okay, so I have here a short paragraph. Would you mind reading this paragraph? I don't mind. A dangerous ambition often lurks behind the mask of zeal for the people then for the people then under zeal for the firmness and efficiency of government. History will teach us that the former has been found a more certain road to despotism than the latter. Out of those men who have overturned liberties of republics, the greatest number have begun by paying an obsequious court to the people and ending tyrants. All right? Um, can you help me define that? Because I'm, I'm a little lost. There's a lot of twists and turns yeah. in this. A dangerous ambition more often lurks behind the mask of zeal for the people than under zeal for the firmness and efficiency of government. So if you're appealing to the masses mm-hmm. rather than appealing to the laws of government, I believe this is what that first sentence is about. Okay. Right? So, all right. So, you know, you want to be... Everybody talks about being law and order, but there is the rule of law, and then there's the interpretation of what that law is, and then there are different philosophies about what that law means, right? We have a very conservative agenda in this country, and we have a very liberal agenda in this country. Mm -hmm. Now, somewhere in the middle, some people take a blend of both, and we all the libertarians in this country. So, you know, how you apply your personal philosophy to the statement depends on your point of view of life, right? A dangerous ambition more often lurks behind the mask of zeal for the people than under zeal for the firmness and efficiency of government. So if your first idea is to serve people, mm-hmm. then you're better off. I think that's what this is saying. The efficiency of government, right? That's what your your job is to do. Make a, the government efficient. Don't waste someone's money. Mm-hmm. Uh, arbitrarily spend it. But that, that happens all the time. History will teach us that the former has been found a more certain road to despotism than the latter. So if you're appealing only to people, if you're a populist like the guy we have in right now, mm-hmm. then you're in danger of being a despot, a tyrant, right? Out of those men who have overturned liberties of republics, that they've taken away personal liberties, mm-hmm. uh, the greatest number have begun by paying an obsequious court to the people and ending tyrants. That last part, what is that? 
The greatest number have begun by paying an obsequious court to the people and ending tyrants. Out of those men who have overturned liberties of republics, the greatest number. So the, the guys that have overturned liberties, the greatest number have begun by paying obsequious court to the people. So they're, they're being obsequious, they're courting, mm -hmm. being unctuous, I guess, and ending tyrants. I don't know. And right. ending tyrants, yeah. it seems to be at opposition to themselves in that sentence, right? Yeah, I didn't get that. I don't either. Unless it's supposed to be taken from the first part of the paragraph. There's a lot in this. Who wrote this? Was this that, is Hamilton. The Hamilton yeah. wrote that? Yeah. My God. That's a dense fucking statement, I'll tell you that much. I wish I could write like that so that people, you know, even if I made no sense, people... <laughs> People would be like, "Wow, that guy's—he's got—he's got some pretty strong ideas." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why not, right? Um, so I think it's a caution against uh, people appealing, appealing to only the to emotion. Yeah, you know, you must be uh, more interested in the 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 rule of law than you are about popularity or being right. Sounds like uh, what you were telling me about being a parent. Right. Yes. Don't be a tyrannical parent. All right, but give, also not giving into the popular demand. Uh, oh, right, just because yeah. they want more candy doesn't or mean whatever it is. Yeah, uh, give all the power to the many. Now it makes sense to me why you have so many kids, <laughs> because <laughs> because you're into politics. Uh, ultimately, you, you you wanted to assume a leadership, a per parental role. Not necessarily. Don't you think like he, when somebody goes into they want to run for a position in office, they're almost saying, I, I think I could do a good job parenting the people. Uh, it didn't come from a place of, of uh, I wanted a family. It yeah. wasn't about me being able to rule people. Not rule people, but just it seems that you have good ideas and you can impart them on people and, and start, it, start it there. It didn't seem like you were very opposed when you're... When you told me the story, your wife is like, well, we still, those are babies. You're like, okay. Well, it wasn't I, like. Because I couldn't make yeah. that moral choice for her. Right. And then but I, it's you, you're not just making it for her, you're making it for yourself too. Well, right. Right. Yeah. But, you know. Yeah. Uh, anyway. They, they would just be in, in, in frozen animation forever. And yeah. then, then you've got to deal with the idea of what happens to those things. They're in suspended animation, right? Uh -huh. uh, then what happens? You die, and then these ice people haunt you. Uh, right? Or or <laughs> someone else gets to decide. Or you let them expire. Uh-huh. Those are your options. Weird place to be. Right? Very interesting so, position you found yourself in. Yeah. Those are my kids. Yeah. I don't want to give them away. I don't want to destroy them. And so we made them. Yeah. So, because I'm a tyrant. <laughs> all right. Give all the power to the many. <laughs> Yeah. They will oppress the people. I hope you don't feel that I was calling you a tyrant. No, that I, was, I know you weren't. Okay. Give all the power to the many, they will oppress the few. Give all the power to the few, they will oppress the many. I agree. You've got to d distribute power. You know, that's why we have the different branches of power in our, our government, right? Yeah. We've but got, is that working? Yeah. You think so? Yeah. To the to the the greatest extent, yeah, it's still running, it's still yeah. happening, right? Yeah. Now, is it working the way I want it to? No. Um, is it working for the greatest number of people? No, but it works. Mm -hmm. You know, 
It's inefficient. We're warmongers. I don't like that. Mm-hmm. You know, we're we're oppressing a lot of people um, around the world. I don't like. Look how many people we've bombed in the last twenty years. It's mm-hmm. fucking insanity. It's criminal. The whole world is though, right? Is it? Isn't the whole world? I'm just talking about the, us. What yeah, we've yeah. done. We've we've we've. I'm not saying we're better or right because everyone else is doing it. I just wonder if this whole world is is a system that is unavoidable for for that. I I would argue it's unavoid it's avoidable. I mean ideally and idealistically it's avoidable. I, yeah. I, I, so that makes if the idea is possible then that but, that the, the that life is possible. But if it? if it if it never realistically happens then it's just an idea if it you know but it does happen. Not every country is at war. Although there's probably currently I bet you a hundred and some wars going on or or conflicts happening around the globe. There is certain enthusiasm in liberty that makes human nature rise above itself in acts of bravery and heroism. All right. Yeah, that one's that was pretty <laughs> It's not arguable. I mean, that's why yeah. we have people that I mean, when you think about our founding fathers and the people that fought uh in the Revolutionary War, they didn't have anything. These guys left their farms. And they had one pair of clothes, and mm-hmm. they went to fight for an idea. That that's that's great heroism, and they weren't paid, and there was promises of payment, but for months they wouldn't be paid, and they barely ate. And yeah, it's crazy what they went through for liberty. Yeah, that that's that's the most impressive. We might have to do it again. We might. <laughs> Oh my God! Will you be there fighting? No, I've got kids. <laughs> Those who stand for nothing fall for everything. That's an old adage, right? Yeah. Well, I don't stand for anything. <laughs> <laughs> that's not true. <laughs> that's that's certainly not true. Talking uh, to you. Patience. Patience seems to be like the number one thing you've that's, been you've well, been that's preaching. My, that's my aspiration. Yeah. Because you know that's it. Yeah. And I think patience, I talk, I don't know, I didn't mention this to you, but uh, when I was talking to you about sobriety and everything, I, I do a group with kids who have um, uh, drug addictions. Oh, at a so- are you sober? I'll, I'll tell you this, that I'm, I'm an addict. It manifests itself with food with me. Okay. I'm obviously severely overweight. Uh, when I'm not, do- when I'm not uh, using food, then I'll switch substances. Mm-hmm. So if I'm so- am I sober, I'm technically not sober. Yeah. Because, uh, but I but I'm always fighting for it, right? I, well, this week I guess I am sober because I've been eating right and everything, but and and I haven't been doing drinking instead or something. Yeah. But I mean, I can I can uh, I can switch off of things that people think are dr- are drugs and seem sober by eating. Right. But then uh, if I don't use food to numb myself, then I'll go back to alcohol or something else. Right. So. Uh, so I would say no. I struggle with sobriety all the time, but maybe this week I am sober. But I I, I do this. Well, as they say in the programs, it's just today, right? Yeah. And even if it's this minute, yeah, because it's the minutes that get you. It's not even the days or the weeks or the years. It's the minutes. Yeah. It's the seconds. It's fighting that impulse, isn't it? So that yeah, that's what I was going to tell you. I tell the kids, and it's kind of what you're preaching about patience. I'm I tell them, you know, what I do to trick myself. If I have impulses to to eat something bad, to drink whatever it is, I'll tell myself I'll do it in a half hour. Oh, that's good. Well, the other thing I think they say to uh, start to recognize is like, why do I want to do that thing right now? Mm-hmm. You know, why do I want to numb myself? What am I not dealing with? That's what I I work on that in therapy yeah. more more or less. Yeah. But 
but I but I know that when I'm in that moment, like you talk about the minutes, when I'm in that moment, when I have an itch, when I need, when I feel like I need a fix of some sort, and I tell myself I I can't have it, then yeah. I immediately take it. Yeah. But yeah. if I tell myself not right now, in a half hour, a half hour later, I'm already busy with something else. I yeah. forgot about. You've it. been able to pass it. So I think you nailed it when you said it's about the minutes because yeah. it's. It really is like it's it's the minute is much bigger than the hour or the day. Right. It's just that minute that it attacks you. I know. That's, that's I agree. Yeah. I agree. And if you can get past this minute, you know, then then you can make it. But um, but uh, but yeah. So so my point going back is just patience. The thing that you keep talking about patience, that is kind of my strategy, and. That's what I talk a lot about with these kids, and I, you know, that's one, good. One of them told me like last week, which really was touching. He said that piece of advice that I gave him about the waiting a half hour. He said, out of everything I've learned in rehab here over the past few months, that's the thing that's actually practically helped me the most. That's fantastic. Which uh, I I felt very good about. Yeah, if you can help someone or or give them a a kind influence, that's that's a that's a great gift. Yeah. Anyway, well, thank you for uh, for your patience and doing the show. Thanks and, for uh, having me. It took us a long time to schedule this, but we we got it done. How long ago was it we uh, we did that show together, the bookshelf book, show? Yeah, you did my show bookshelf at the Improv about a year ago, I guess. Was it a year? Uh, maybe a little less. I have no concept of time. Oh, okay, uh, but I, I I know especially in LA when it, when it all feels like, I feel like I live in a set. You mm-hmm. know. Everything is just the way it was. There's nothing is rusting. There's the weather stays the same. Weather's beautiful. It's, every day. it's yeah. great, but uh, I also lose track of when anything was. But you were terrific on my show, Bookshelf. And oh, really? Okay, good. Y- Thank y- you. You were you killed it. You were fantastic. Oh, and, and that's a tough room, the Improv Lab. It it can be warm in there. That's the thing I find is sometimes it's like, hey, we need to crank the air. You think that's what it is? Well, the other night I was there and it was sweaty. Yeah, I went from the main room to the lab. I was like, my God, this is a hot box in here. Uh huh. Yeah, that's interesting. There's always I hear different theories from comics. Oh, on, what are they, on what's what the it, other theories? The layout, um, just that it's not uh, contained. You have the bar there, yeah, and then you have the the seating, and it doesn't feel like an enclosed seating area. People don't want to sit up front. Yeah. No one ever sits in those front two chairs. It's they it's, they feel like they're going to get picked on because it's such a small, intimate space. Yeah, they feel like uh, I think they're like. They're their their prey. My theory is that it's a vertical setup and not a horizontal. I think the stage should be in the middle because you have the stage in the in the at the very end vertically, uh-huh. and then you have rows and rows of chairs that go back to the to wall. wall. Yeah. Um, I feel like the the middle to the to the wall, there's a disconnect from the front to the middle. Hmm. Whereas if the stage was in the middle, you'd have an equal distribution to the audience of but I feel like they're like I'm not even in the show really. I'm all the way back here, even though it's a small space. Yeah, you can when you sit back there, you can almost feel like you're you're watching it on TV. Well, that might be part of it. And sometimes, if in a smaller, intimate room, people might not feel as free to laugh, so it's a little harder to pull. Yeah, you know, you got to really get it out of them. Uh, they might feel a little more intimidated or something by the room. I don't know. It makes you work that room anyway. Yeah, it and makes you, you better. You were terrific. All right, but, brother. Thanks so much. Bye. All right, all right, that's our show. Dave Keckner, thanks for doing the show. You guys and gals, thanks for tuning in. Please go on iTunes, leave us a nice comment. Five stars is the amount of stars we're looking for. And a donation, please. 
moderndayphilosophers.net. You can write into the show at thecomical at yahoo.com. Send in your wishes for the new year. I hope you all have a great new year, a healthy new year, a happy new year, a new year filled with ambition and hope that is not disappointed by crushing failure, as I hope for myself. Anyway, uh, that's about it. My comic, Fair Enough, will be hitting the web stores soon. We are going to print. I'm very excited. I will keep you updated on the next episode on how you could get a copy of the first issue of my comic book. But until then, I wish you all a very happy new year. So long, everybody, and thanks for tuning in. Thanks for being part of this audience. I really, really appreciate you. And although that may not sound sincere because of the tone of voice I'm using, it is sincere. It's very sincere. Too much gravitas? Huh? I don't know. Talk to you soon. Bye.